The plan is now to finish my part, having begun with the world and why it is in the kind of misery that it's in, in moral and physical evil. And then secondly, Christ's own misery and suffering. Why did that happen and all that it achieved for us? And then thirdly, Paul's suffering last night and its application to us and why he suffered so much. And now tonight, zeroing in on you and your particular suffering that either you are in now or sooner or later will be in. Nobody will enter the kingdom of heaven except through afflictions. And that's the way you're going to walk. It is a narrow way and a hard way that leads to life and few there be that find it. But it is a joy-dominated way for those who know the truth of Scripture and, and trust themselves to a sovereign creator. So that's the plan for tonight. And before I begin, I'd like to ask God's help once more. Father, as I undertake to handle another portion of your Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 32, I ask for your help. I pray that my mind would be illumined by your Holy Spirit, and I pray that I would be protected from mistake and from the devil who would incline me to fear man or to be proud or to lust or any other kind of sin, that I would be protected, that you would put a shield about me. And I pray that for these friends who are listening. Oh, Lord God, Jesus said that when the word is preached, Satan plucks the seed off the path so that people don't even remember what they heard. And I, by this prayer now, ask that you would shoot that bird out of the sky and that these words would not simply land untouchable by the devil, but they wouldn't be burned up by the sun of affliction and they wouldn't be choked out by the thorns of prosperity and desire for other things, but they would find in this room amazingly good soil. I ask for good soil, Father, so that the Word of God would come and bear fruit 30, 60, 100-fold for the sake of Northern Ireland and for the sake of the nations. Lord, let the ripple effect of all the messages in this conference bear more fruit than we could have ever dreamed. That's our heart's desire. Nothing be wasted here. So come, guide my mouth. Let there be an anointing on this word and an unusual Lydia-like openness and readiness to hear and believe and act. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, I ended with my illustrations, and tonight, I'm going to begin with my illustrations and then do the exposition of Jeremiah 32. So in 10 or 15 minutes, we will arrive at the text, and then we'll close with the best news I know of in all the world. Let's put it first in a poem. This is a four-line poem that I wrote to try to capture the meaning of sustaining grace. So that's what I'm talking about tonight, 
sustaining grace. And by sustaining grace, I mean the power of God, undeserved by us, that moves into our lives and sustains us, keeps us, preserves us through everything we experience so that we enter into final glory and do not make shipwreck of our faith and perish. That's what sustaining grace is for me. So I'll put it in a poem. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain. And then in the darkness is there to sustain. I'll say it one more time. You try to get hold of what I'm saying sustaining grace is in these four lines. I'll probably say this five times before we're done. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Now let me tell you some stories to illustrate that, and then we'll find it in the Bible. Eleven years ago, Bob Ricker, the president of the Baptist General Conference at that time, came and preached at the 125th anniversary of Bethlehem Baptist Church, where I've been these 26 years. So our church is, what, 134, no, five years old this year. So we were celebrating 125, whatever the math is, it was that anniversary he came. And he told this story. He said that his daughter, a teenager at the time, was driving and had a terrible car accident, was thrown from the car onto the pavement and was not breathing. And behind her in a car was a doctor who pulled over and got out, went to her, noticed that she was not able to breathe, and in his pocket, I don't know the name of this device, there is a device for emergency tracheotomies. You, you thrust it into the windpipe if you know where it is, and they can breathe here so that they don't die. And he did that for her, risking malpractice suits. And she lived and was normal after that. And then he said, just a few years later, he did her wedding. And there she was in front of him, her dad, the pastor, standing in front of her, and she was beautiful, as all brides are, in her wedding gown, and she had a scar, several scars right here, which were not hidden. And he looked down at her, and at a point in the message, commented to his daughter, those scars are memorials of sustaining grace. When I heard him say that, this message began to formulate. Those are memorials of sustaining grace. Now here's the catch. Bob Ricker is no dummy. He knows. In fact, he had quoted in the message at the 120th anniversary, Ephesians 1:11, where God works all things together according to the counsel of his will. He knows that. He knows that if the sovereignty of God could see to it that there was 
a doctor riding behind his daughter, that this doctor would have a device in his pocket that could do an emergency tracheotomy, that this doctor would be enabled to have the courage to risk his own practice, to thrust it into a throat and might have hit the juggler vein and been accused of killing her and saved her life. If God can arrange all of that, he could have prevented the accident. Sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Illustration number two. That same summer, a few weeks later, my wife and two of my sons, Abraham and Barnabas, and my little daughter, Talitha, who was just, what, a few months old at the time, were traveling. You don't probably know the geography of America well enough to know where this is, but they were traveling south from Minnesota to South Carolina through Indiana, just south of Indianapolis on a Saturday evening in the middle of nowhere, the radiator leaks, is ruined, rusts out, and the car overheats. And here's my wife, two sons, one 16 and one 12 or something like that, little baby, and it's Saturday evening. And it's on a freeway, and there's nobody within sight. It's going to be Sunday tomorrow. There's nobody able to fix this. She has nobody to help. Her husband is who knows where. And she sits there pondering how God might handle this, and a man stops. This is risky, right? A man by himself stops. He gets out, sees the steam coming out of the car, and, and he sees this is a problem, and he says, uh, my wife says, I think we're going to need a motel and, and then get this fixed on Monday morning. And he says, well, you're sure welcome to stay with us at our farm nearby. Now, what would you have done? <laughs> My wife, shrewd that she is, says, well, could we go to church with you tomorrow morning? <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> and his answer was, can you take a Baptist church? This is a Baptist pastor's wife. She feels that's enough evidence. <laughs> Puts her life and her children in his care and, and goes to their house and does go to church with them in a Baptist church the next morning. And here's the beauty of it all. He happens to be a retired airplane mechanic. Early Monday morning, almost before they were up, he drives back into Indianapolis, buys a radiator, comes back, puts it in before noon, and they're on their way that afternoon, having enjoyed the fellowship of this family. And here's the icing on the cake. My son Barnabas, who's the only one of my sons who likes to fish, 
found a pond on the farm, took his pole, threw in the line, and caught a 19-inch catfish and made his whole summer. Best detour he'd ever made, he thought. Now, I wonder if you know where I'm going. If God could arrange for a farmer who's an airplane mechanic with a big heart and a farm nearby and the ability to not only purchase but put in a radiator on Monday morning and send my wife on her way rejoicing with a pond on his farm with a catfish swimming around at the bottom waiting for the worm that my son would throw in to make the best summer he's ever had. If God can arrange that, he could have spared the radiator. So easy. Sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Illustration number three. As I mentioned the first night, our church seems to have more than its share of parents with um, profoundly disabled children. I mentioned a baby born with no eyes. I didn't mention a baby born with 40% of his brain. I didn't mention the numerous stillbirths. Um, I mentioned Michael, who has nothing but seizures in his brain and will probably never get beyond a mentality of 18 months old. And, and the list goes on. And one of the dads came up to me one time. All, all of those illustrations, by the way, have parents mighty in the Spirit, mighty in the Scriptures, mighty in God, trusting in the sovereign goodness of God who says God meant it for good, and they are discovering slowly and painfully what that is. Um, one of the fathers came to me, and he said to me one time, you know, it would have been easier had Jesus not healed anybody and had just said to people that he would be enough for them. And I said, well, Jesus did heal people. He heals people today. But he did, in fact, say what you just said. You wished he had said. And he asked me what I meant. And I just read to him the text that you're thinking of right now, probably. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Paul says to Jesus about his thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, Father, please take it away. Answer, no. Father, please, take it away. It hurts. No. Father, please. I ask one third time, a third time, please, take it away. And he says, no. And then he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. To which Paul then responds, as I'm watching people respond, and I'm praying you're going to respond when yours comes. Most gladly, therefore... I will rather boast about my weaknesses that in the power of Christ, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then am I strong. And I simply said to him, Jesus did say to some people, I will not heal you but I will be there for you in your darkness. 
Sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and our pain. And then in the darkness is there to sustain. I've got other illustrations. That's enough. Let's go to the text. If you have a Bible, Jeremiah chapter 32. Some have asked, and I'll just say it because I don't have any shares in this company, and you don't even know, need to know the company. They've asked me what version I'm using. This is the English Standard Version, relatively new, about five years or so old. It's published in Britain as well as America, and so uh, if you're looking for a version, I, I find this a church that is able to, this uh, version, and able to unify my church, the children, memorization, preaching, teaching, liturgical uses. I find this very, I commend it to you for consideration. I don't go around publicly criticizing versions usually, but I do like to commend this. Jeremiah 32, and I want to read verses 36 to 41. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, means Jerusalem, this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. That's a true statement. That's what they say, and that's true. And then verse 37, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. It doesn't get any better than that in the Bible. So I want to spend the last minutes unfolding for you those words. And I hope that they'll become among your favorites in all the Bible when you see what is taught there. The first thing to notice is that these folks are in Babylon. They're in exile by God's work. Verse 36, the people say it. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say it's given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. That's true. That's true. But they don't get the last word. Exile does not get the last word. Punishment does not get the last word. So verse 37, behold, I will gather them. Out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger. Now notice, I drove them there. The radiator broke under my care. 
The daughter was thrown from the car under my surveillance. I was on watch when the baby was born. This is not, oh, we have an exile situation here that didn't have anything to do with God. God just rescues. He doesn't discipline. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them. In my anger and wrath and indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. Now here's the question. The rest of this text is going to describe the underlying heart of God at work in that rescue. My question is, tonight can you appropriately apply this text to you as an individual? Or does this just apply to Israel? This is a new covenant promise. I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase new covenant. It comes from the chapter before. You might want to turn page, one page back to verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, verse 31, chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. The old covenant was written on stone, encountered a hard heart, and was broken. It was powerless to bring about what it demanded. The new covenant will not be like that. The new covenant will be different. Verse 33 of chapter 31. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law not on stone, but within them. I'll write it on their hearts. And I'll be their God They'll be my people. No longer shall each one teach the neighbor, his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They're all going to know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, I'll forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. The new covenant succeeds. It captures a people. It redeems a people. It sanctifies a people. It writes law on the people's hearts. Thus it produces the obedience required and it keeps the people. Now that's the same covenant being described in verses 38 to 41 of chapter 32. Now the reason I point that out is because it helps me answer the question, does it apply to you? And my answer is, it does apply to you. And Jesus wants you to read this text with tremendous encouragement as applying to you for this reason. Let's put it in two phases. The first one is this. At the Last Supper, according to Luke, Jesus lifts up the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in or by my blood. Now, what does that mean? It means that when I shed my blood, I am purchasing all the new covenant promises for all who are mine, for all who will trust in me, for all whom my blood covers. 
And that applies to anyone in this room who will have it, who will have the blood covering you. If you say, I receive that, I want the blood to cover me, I will have Jesus as this beautiful Lord and Savior over my life with all the benefits of the new covenant that come with the purchase of the shed blood of Jesus. So it's yours if you will have it. Here's a a second phase in the argument for why you should embrace this text as yours in Christ. You remember the argument of Paul in Galatians? He said that the seed of Abraham to whom the promise is made is Christ. And then he argued that if you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, if you are in Christ, belong to Christ, you are an heir of Abraham. In other words, you're a Jew. You're a true Jew. And therefore, when I read the first two-thirds of this book, I say, mine, because I'm in the seed. I'm in the Messiah. And so I encourage you to read the Old Testament that way. I encourage you to read especially these verses in Jeremiah 32 that they're yours. So that means that what I am trying to do for the next 10 minutes or so is to show you the most glorious sustaining promises for your life that will sustain not only your body and mind, but will sustain your faith, will sustain your obedience. And here's the reason that matters to me. I don't know if you sing this song. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O God, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Tell me, in English, another word for fetter. Give me a word. Chin or chin. (laughs) That's exactly right. Chain. So this this singer, oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter chain my wandering heart to thee. Do you pray like that? Or do you say, I don't need to pray like that. I'm eternally secure. Now, I believe in eternal security with all my heart because it says in Romans 8.30, those who are justified are glorified. That just ends it for me. Clear as day, if you're justified, you're going to be glorified. But on the way to glorification, what a warfare. And it matters how you fight it, whether you show yourself to be on your way to glorification. I do not think any saint prays in vain. Deliver me from temptation. Guard me from the evil one. Chain my soul to you. Guard me, O God. Keep me, preserve me. Defeat every rebellion. Overcome every niggling doubt. 
deliver me from every destructive temptation, nullify every fatal allurement, expose every demonic deception, tear down every arrogant argument, shape me, incline me, hold me, master me, do whatever you have to do to my body or my mind not to let me make shipwreck of my faith and be lost. And what I'm here to argue is God will never let his saints be lost. If they pray like that. Those who are justified will be glorified. And the evidence of whether you're justified is whether you take seriously the warfare. Now, the best news in all the world, as you can imagine, therefore, to me, is this text. So let's look at it carefully. Verses 38 to 41 of Jeremiah 32. They shall be my people. This is you if you trust Christ. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. That matters that he does that. That's not icing on the cake. That must happen. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me and I will rejoice over them to do them good and I will plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Now I'm going to make four, I think, patently obvious observations from this text. Number one, God promises to be our God in the new covenant that is in Christ. Verse 38, I will be, they will be my people and I will be their God. Have you ever paused to wonder what it means to have God say to you, I am your God? That's worth several days worth of meditation. One way that I find help in saying it is all that God is, all of his omnipotence, all of his godness, all of his knowledge, all of his justice, all of his mercy, all of his grace, all of his truth, all of his power, he exercises on my behalf to keep me, hold me, write his law on my, my heart, never let me go. He exercises omnipotent might on my behalf. He's my God. His godness is for me. Second point. God promises in the new covenant to change our hearts and cause us to love and fear him. Verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. Verse 40 at the end, end of the verse. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. 
God will work to see to it that his elect, who believe in Jesus and are justified, fear him. Always. Let me say a word about that word always here and what I think that means in terms of the imperfection and the ups and downs of the Christian life. Because there are plenty of ups and downs in our lives, right? aren't there? Some days we love him so much we can hardly stand it. And other days he seems very far away. And the fear of him is in seed form, like a mustard seed that you can barely detect. I think one of the best expositions of God's keeping power is Luke 22, 32. Have you ever noticed this? Jesus is speaking to Peter. And he says to him, something reminiscent of Job. He says, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Now, I think that means Satan wants to take you and he has a very jagged sieve designed to squeeze faith out of people and he's going to push you through this. He wants to push you through it. And out comes Peter, unbelieving, on the other side. That's what Satan has asked. And then Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, not if you turn, when you have turned, Strengthen your brothers. I love the sovereignty of Christ in that statement. But do you see what it implies? Peter is his own. He's chosen him. He's going to build his church with this man and the other gospel preaching apostles. He'll never let him go. Never let him go. But Satan has asked, can I sift him? Can I try my best to rip faith out of his life tonight when you go on trial? And Jesus, the Father, I suppose, in this case, gives Satan permission to go at him. And Jesus intercedes with the Father. Father, don't let his faith fail. And I think he means utterly. Because in one sense, his faith failed. He didn't trust God to help him over that temptation. He failed. He denied the master. A genuine believer can have moments like that in his life. So don't hear that sentence or this one to be perfectionistic. Okay? Is that clear? This is not a perfectionistic statement that you will fear me always. It is a direction and when you waver off of it, I'm bringing you back. You're mine. When a person is off of this track, in a state of denying Jesus, I give them no warrant that they are saved. The warrant that we belong to Jesus is faith. If faith is absent, as far as my eyes can see, I can give them no warrant. It may be there in seed form. I don't think Peter stopped being a Christian when he denied Jesus. But what a failure. 
he was. And if I talked to Peter that night before he wept bitterly, I would say to him, Peter, you must return or you will perish. You stay in a state of denying Jesus, you're going to go to hell. God would never let that happen, ever, for one of his own. That's what this text is about. I will give them one heart. This is verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. That's the mark of the people in the covenant, in the new covenant. Observation number three. God promises that he will not turn away from doing us good and he will not let us turn away from him. Now we read verse 40 at the beginning. I will make with them an everlasting covenant with them. I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Sometimes I scare the living daylights out of people by asking them, what makes you think you're going to wake up a Christian in the morning? What makes you think you're going to believe Jesus in the morning and not be a hellish unbeliever for the rest of your life, renouncing the Savior, having apparently walked with Him for 10 years? What makes you think you're going to wake up a believer tomorrow morning? I wonder what your answer would be. I'll tell you what, it isn't, it isn't your free will. Left to yourself, you won't wake up a believer tomorrow morning. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Take my heart, oh God, and bind me with a chain to you. This verse is saying, you will wake up a believer tomorrow morning. So people ask me, so... Where do you get your security? Answer, from that promise. My security is not in my six-year-old profession of faith. Believe me, I don't even remember it. My mother told me I prayed to receive Jesus when I was six. I believe her. I don't even remember it. My security does not lie in my profession of faith. Fifty. To uh, do the math, four years ago. You ask me tonight as I leave here, how do you know you're going to heaven? I'll say, I trust Jesus. I look to the cross that paid all my sins and I believe I will keep on believing him because of this promise. And if I ever made shipwreck of my faith and threw it all away, I would show I've been a hypocrite all my life. There are such people. It's a frightening thing to make shipwreck of the Christian faith at age 55, 25, and never return like Peter returned. Wherein does our security lie? It lies objectively in the cross and the imputed righteousness of Christ and it relies subjectively in God's almighty promise. I'll just read it. 
I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from John Piper to do him good. I will put the fear of me in his heart so that John Piper will not turn away from me. That's my only hope to keep me saved the rest of my life. And I totally believe that I and every elect person, every justified person will persevere to the end. I believe in the sovereignty of God so much that it not only gets me saved, it keeps me saved by keeping me believing. That's a mighty work of God and it's promised right there. Nobody has to go to bed tonight afraid that you won't stay a believer for the rest of your life. It's the living God over your life promising that in Christ you are His and He will keep you His forever. And I have one last observation. This is the best of all for me because it doesn't go further in content. It goes further in divine intensity. So the fourth observation from this text is God promises to do this for you and me with the greatest possible intensity imaginable. That is, God is on your side. He is for you and your perseverance and your glorification and your final salvation with an intensity of desire and devotion greater than which cannot be conceived. That is not a sermonic flourish. That is a precise restatement of this text. And I'll try to close by showing you that so that you can revel in it all night long. Read again verse 30, 41 with me. And I will rejoice over them. Now that's great enough, but it's going to get better. I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Collapse that down to read it like this, just to make the beginning part relate to the last part. And I will rejoice over them with all my heart and with all my soul. Now here's my logical, rational challenge to all you brainy people who like to think. I challenge you. Can you even conceive, I mean theoretically, can you even conceive of an intensity of desire or an intensity of joy greater than that which is spoken in the words, all God's heart and all God's soul. I'll just pause while you entertain that possibility. Can you even conceive, logically, theoretically, experientially, of any energy, any intensity, any desire greater than that which is meant by a rejoicing with all the divine heart and all the divine soul? And my answer to that question is no. 
It is not possible to conceive of a greater joy, a greater energy, a greater intensity than is implied in all of God's heart and in all of God's soul. Let's just work on it for a minute. Let's take all the desires of all the human hearts of all the world. There are what? Six billion plus people on planet Earth. And they have a desire for food and they have a desire for sex and they have a desire for money, and they have a desire for fame, and they have a desire for power, and they have a desire for meaning and significance, and they have a desire for friends and family, and they have a desire for security and safety. Let's take all those amazingly intense desires of all six billion people and gather them up and put them in a container. And then compare that container of passion and desire and intensity and joy and longing with the container that holds the intensity of God's joy over you to do you good implied in the words, all God's heart and all God's soul. How would those two containers compare to each other? They would compare like a thimble to the Pacific Ocean and that is an infinite understatement. And the reason is because all God's heart and all God's soul is infinite. It's infinite. It has no limits. Your soul, my soul, my heart, your heart, they've got limits. Angelic hearts have limits. When God says, all my heart, all my soul, he means breathtakingly unimaginably, he is infinitely energetic about your good. This is what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be bought. You cannot be lost if you're in the hands of such a God. He will never, ever cease expending infinite energy to keep you his. Even if he has to pray, Father, I pray for Peter that when he turns after denying me three times, when he turns, he will strengthen his brothers. Christ is always going to pray like that for his elect who stumble into some season of terrible sin. Coming back will be the evidence of his sovereign grace and choice over your life. What a great salvation. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble, our pain, and now we can add our sin. Peter's sin, my sin, orders our trouble and grace and sin. And then, in the darkness of that awful night of walking away from his Savior, Denying him three times, he's there to sustain and save. Let's pray. Father in heaven, with all my heart, I am thankful for the sustaining grace of the new covenant. Where would I be? I have tasted such wandering in my life. I have tasted the flavor of callousness. I have tasted the potential of walking away from Jesus. And nothing is more frightening 
And I'm so thankful that your promise stands like a banner over our lives. I will put my law within you. I will write it on your heart. I will never turn away from doing you good. And I will not let you turn away from me. Therein is my blood-bought hope. And I ask now that you would increase the boldness of your people. Oh, that people tonight who tremble, who, who are assaulted by the devil who accuses them, would lift up this verse and take this dagger of the Word of God and thrust Satan through with it tonight, Lord, that they might sleep like a baby, perhaps for the first time in a long time. Lord, the point of this message is not to create a bunch of feel-good Christians in Northern Ireland. The point is to make us as bold as a lion in the face of every opposition and every accusation. Lord, do that great work. The Irish should be lion-hearted people. And in Christ, I pray that it would be absolutely extraordinary. Would it not be just like you, God, to use a little out-of-the-way place like this? Yes, it would be. To set the world on its head. Five loaves and two fish. And the miracle is done. And the world is changed. Lord, make lion-hearted, bold, unshakable saints in Northern Ireland. In every denomination, I pray. In Jesus' name.